8th chapter of Matthew, for that matter, gives us some accounts of healings that took place in the ministry of Jesus. We want to read particularly about the Capernaum, uh, the centurion in Capernaum. So we'll begin at verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. A centurion is a Roman soldier, officer. He's a captain over a hundred other soldiers. So the centurion comes to him and beseeches him and says, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. There's a, uh, there's a little play on words here that, um, well, how do I say this? The King James translation does not accurately portray what Jesus said. Now, it's close, and it's close enough to, for us to say, well, it means the same thing. And perhaps that's a legitimate position for us to take. But Jesus literally said, having come, I will heal him. Having come, I will heal him. I believe Jesus is saying, since I've come to the earth and that's part of the work that God's given me to do, of course I'll heal it. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, the Bible says. Sickness is one of those great works that he came to destroy. But back to the King James, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard that, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, he's talking about the Jews, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Now, Jesus was caught off guard here, and it's, uh, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't know about this guy ahead of time. But that Jesus is caught by surprise... I guess it would be okay for us to say it that way. Jesus is caught by surprise at this guy's faith. Jesus marvels and says, I haven't found that kind of faith in Israel. Now, it says to me that he, should have, he thought he should have found that kind of faith in Israel. I mean, after all, the Jews are the ones that know about Abraham. He's their father. He's the head of their race of people. And we all know about Abraham's faith. The Jews exalted Abraham's faith as being the thing that brought them into a covenant with God. Abraham's faith solidified his covenant with God that was passed down to every other generation, each and every generation that came after. So Jesus marvels, not just at the fact that this guy's got faith, but that he's not a Jew. He said, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. Now, folks, let's stop right there and consider something. What determines for any individual what level of faith they're working on? Or what level of faith they're believing by? Or living by, really, I guess maybe that'd be the best way to say it. Who determines what level of faith we live by? Wasn't God. If it would have been God, then Jesus wouldn't have been surprised at this guy at all. 
If God was the one that determined these things, then Jesus wouldn't have responded the way that he did. Jesus might have said, oh, well, you're one of them. You're one of the ones that have an extra measure of faith. But Jesus marvels because somebody chose to develop in faith to a higher level than he found among any of the Israelites. Now, he tells us how he did it. He tells us what was the source of his level of faith. Jesus calls it great faith. He doesn't. The centurion doesn't call it that, but Jesus calls it great faith. And he says this, that it's because of his understanding of authority. He gives orders, and those orders are obeyed. And somewhere along the line, something happened that this man heard something about Jesus, heard about the healing ministry of Jesus, heard about the healing works, however we want to say it. Something happened to where this guy heard about Jesus and used what he heard to apply it to his knowledge of authority to come up with the, the understanding that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. Now, folks, if that was a simple thing, why didn't anybody else do it? If that was an easy thing and, a, and a, a commonplace thing and something that you would have expected and Jesus expected something out of the people that had a covenant with God. But if it was an easy thing, if it was a simple thing, if it was a commonplace thing, why did not anybody else do it? Now there's another place in, uh, in Scripture, I think it's Matthew 15, where it talks about the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus credits her great faith. Because she won't be deterred. She's not an Israelite either. And one obstacle after another, even those seemingly put up by Jesus himself. She cried after him, talking about her daughter at home, sick, grievously sick and tormented. Jesus first didn't answer her. Second, he said that healing belonged to the Jews. Third, well, I guess it's the second one twice, really, if you get down to it. He said he wasn't sent but to anyone but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she took what she heard and she applied it to herself. There's no questions about miracles from these guys. They took what they heard, the reality of the reports that they heard about Jesus and his healing ministry, and they applied it to themselves. And Jesus calls it great faith. Jesus calls it great faith. Now here's the question. This really gets to the heart of the matter, I guess. If they could develop great faith with more than a limited knowledge of God's plan and the, and the work of redemption accomplished through Jesus, why don't we develop great faith? We've got more to work on and more to build on than they did. We've got a greater knowledge, a greater understanding than they did. Now back to this centurion, it's all about his understanding of authority. At least that's the only thing that the story tells us. So if it was anything other than the understanding of authority, the Holy Ghost did us an injustice by leaving us the record that he did. Well, thank God he didn't do, an, he didn't do us an injustice. So this man says he understands authority. How did he come to understand that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease? 
Well, somebody might say, living in those days, you could hear of the miracles of Jesus. Maybe he's been in some of the crowds where he's seen miracle works take place. But folks, the church has got even more than that. The modern-day church has many more examples, much more foundation of truth as to the power that we've been given, even has more evidence and understanding of man's authority on the earth than this guy had. So what's keeping us from developing this great faith? Now, here's what great faith looks like. Great faith says, speak the word only and my servant will be healed. I don't need any physical evidence. He's heard enough about Jesus to develop his understanding and his belief in him. He just simply says, speak the word only. Great faith is able and willing to stand just on the word. And Jesus marvels. Now notice how Jesus ministers to this guy. He's already offered to come to his house. We would expect that this centurion lives somewhere close to Capernaum because in uh, some of the other uh, gospel accounts, I think it's Luke's account, it says that when the centurion came, the Jews said that Jesus should help him because he's done them a great service, done the Jews a great service. Specifically, he built them a synagogue. So he's given money to the Jews for the purpose of establishing or building the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus did a lot, of, a lot of mighty works, a lot of miracles throughout his three-year ministry. This is at the very beginning, so most of the miracles come, place, come to pass or take place at a later date, maybe a year or two later. So the idea that the Jews have is the Old Testament promise that God made. He said, I'll bless those that bless you, talking about Abraham and his seed. I'll bless those that bless you. And I'll curse those that curse you. So the Jews understand that. And they say, Jesus, you ought to do something to help this guy. He's been a blessing to us. So Jesus is willing to do it. He's willing to go to his house. He says, I will come and heal him. Or again, as the Greek literally says, having come. Meaning healing was a part of the purpose that he was sent for. I will heal him. Notice Jesus ministers healing to the guy, not by saying, your daughter is healed, not by cursing the sickness or disease. Jesus doesn't pray in any way whatsoever. He simply says, as you have believed, so be it done unto you. As you have believed, so be it done unto you. He doesn't tell him that there's something more that he needs to believe. He doesn't tell him that we need to pray and agree. He certainly doesn't tell him that we need to put my hands, lay Jesus' hands on the, the body of his servant. He simply says, as you've believed, so be it done unto you. Now, how many of us know that Jesus is anointed to heal? It's one of the things that took place when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, immediately it says that Jesus went into the wilderness. He goes to prepare himself for the three years of ministry that are uh, just beginning. He's tempted of the devil during those 40 days in the wilderness. And then he comes back and Luke, uh, um, 
what is it, Luke 4, verse 15, somewhere around there. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. So we know that that was the beginning of miracles. We know that it was only after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape as a dove and remained. We know that that was the signal or the beginning point for the healings and the miracles and whatever other mighty things Jesus did in his earthly ministry. That must have been a significant amount of time for the centurion to hear some of those stories and to develop what Jesus finds out to be his great faith. We don't know what kind of time period there was. We don't know how long it took him to come to this conclusion, but he came to the conclusion that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. So all you got to do is say the word. Well, Jesus saying the word was simply this. Be it unto you according as you believed. Be it unto you according as you have believed. Now, folks, Jesus knows what he's anointed for. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 tells us the story of Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. Beginning in verse 16, it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. That's where he lived when he came back from Egypt when Mary and Martha, uh, Mary and Joseph were commanded by the Lord to take him there. They came back to Israel and settled in Nazareth. And this is the town that he returns to early on in his ministry. Not the very first, but early on. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Well, what are you anointed to do, Jesus? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, brokenhearted is not talking about emotions there. It literally means a breach in spirit. A breach in spirit. All the things that the devil does, including sickness and disease, is a breach in spirit. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a breach in the spirit of the individual who is being attacked with sickness or disease. But it means that God's spiritual order has been changed. And it was changed by Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. That created a breach in spirit from what God intended for things to be. He made man in his own image. He gave him authority on the earth. God's plan was for man never to fall. He knew that he would, but it wasn't his plan for it to happen. God intended for Adam to be able to live the full length of his days without any knowledge of sin or sickness or disease. So where it says heal the brokenhearted, it's talking about the results, the consequences. Sickness would certainly be part of it. The results and the consequences of God's broken spiritual order. Jesus is anointed to heal those that have been affected by that break in spiritual order. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fast, fastened on him. 
And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, folks, I've heard. I don't know how to check it out. I don't know how to research it. I've done some research, and you can find certain things that indicate that that might be the case, but nobody knows definitively, or at least nobody I've read after. But apparently in the synagogues, it's not a common practice. I think one of the reasons it's not a common practice today is because the Jews really aren't looking for a Messiah. But in Jesus' day, it is said that there was a seat in the synagogue in a very special place, and that seat was reserved for the Messiah. Very much like during the Jews' Passover, there's a table setting there that nobody ever uses because it's set for Elijah. But when Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the rabbi, and sat down, if this custom was accurate, if this custom was true, it's very possible that Jesus, after just having read scriptures that everybody knows refers to the Messiah, it's Isaiah 61 for us, but it's a messianic scripture for the Jews. So after Jesus says, this is the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus then goes to sit down in the Messiah's seat. And it says all the eyes of everybody there were fastened on him. Well, if that's where he sat down, you better believe all the eyes of the people would be fastened on him. And then when he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, there is no clearer message that he could send to communicate, I am the Messiah. He's read scriptures about the Messiah and said, these mean me. He has seated himself in the Messiah's seat. He's identified to his people, to the Jews in Capernaum. This is who I am. Now, folks, notice the anointing that's upon him. He's anointed to preach, preach the gospel, the good news. We know what that gospel was. Jesus isn't preaching that he's going to be crucified. He's not preaching that he's going to be raised from the dead. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, which means God wants you to experience the blessings of heaven here on the earth. In the Lord's Prayer, you may remember that Jesus instructed the disciples to pray, Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God, in other words. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. I said those backwards. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. The good news that Jesus taught the people was that God wanted things to be for them here on the earth just like it is in heaven. He's explaining the character of God. He's showing the nature of God. He's identifying to them and to us. He's identifying. God doesn't want anything for you here that he doesn't want for you in heaven. The things that you and I experience here on the earth are not because that's the way God wants them to be. God's the same. So what God would want for you in heaven, he has to want for you here on the earth. Well, everybody knows there's no sickness or disease in heaven. Everybody knows that there's nothing that can hurt or harm mankind in any way whatsoever. So where does the church come off by saying and preaching and teaching that God wants people to be afflicted or to go through hard places or to suffer with sickness and disease so that they can learn something? That's not the way you learn in heaven. So why would it be the way God wanted us to learn here? 
Thank God it's not. Thank God it's not. This was the good news that the disciples went out and preached too when Jesus sent them forth. He gave them power and authority over sicknesses and disease and told them to go preach the kingdom of God. In other words, according to Jesus' definition, God wants the same thing for you here on the earth that he wants for you in heaven. And folks, this is a part of the Jews' history of blessing, part of the promise that God had made to the children of Israel about taking the promised land when Moses was their leader. And they came through the Red Sea on dry ground and Pharaoh's armies and uh, chariots and horses and everything else were destroyed when they followed him after, followed him after the Jews in the Red Sea crossing. One of the things that Moses said, and he said it a couple of different ways, but he said that God wants you to experience days of heaven on the earth. And it all comes through being a doer of the word, being obedient to the word of God. The good news that Jesus came to bring us was that God's on our side. He's not the one causing the problems. He's got an answer and a victory over the problems. Jesus knows what he's anointed to do. He's well aware of his anointing over sickness and disease as being part of what God sent for him to do and to manifest here on the earth. But notice how that anointing is ministered in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus doesn't pray. It's not necessary for him to put his hands on people. Now, the Bible talks a lot about Jesus laying hands on the sick. But apparently, that's not the only way that the healing anointed can be transferred. Jesus simply says, according to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. Now, here's the question. Why didn't Jesus have to pray for the sick? You can't find anywhere in any of the Gospels where Jesus prayed for the sick. You can find where he ministered to the sick by laying on of hands. You can find places where he ministered to the sick by speaking the word. He healed them with his word. You can find other isolated cases, rare cases, where Jesus ministered in, a, in an unusual way. On one, in one case, he spit on the ground and made a little mud pack and put it on the blind man's eyes told him to wash it off in the pool of Siloam. Another place, Jesus spit on his finger and touched the tongue of a man that was, couldn't speak. He was deaf and dumb, and his ears popped open and his tongue began to work. So there are examples of where there were unusual ways that Jesus ministered to the sick, but you can't ever find a place where he prayed for them. You can't even find a place where the disciples prayed for them. What does that tell us about the healing anointing? Let me show you another couple of examples of this. Look with me to Mark, uh, I'm sorry, to Matthew chapter 9. Here's Matthew's account of the woman with the issue of blood. I'll begin in verse 20. It says, And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment, for she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. Jesus turned him about when he saw her and said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made thee whole. Now here's a place, here's a, an incident 
where the healing anointing that's upon Jesus, the healing power that was resident upon Jesus, that came with the anointing of the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. It, was, it signified to John, according to John's own testimony, that God had told him ahead of time, the one that you see the Holy Ghost coming on and remaining, he's the one, he's the Messiah. Well, that's what John witnessed when Jesus was baptized. So Jesus is anointed to heal. And apparently that anointing to heal is upon him all the time. Because he was on his way to Jairus' house here in Matthew chapter 9 to minister to somebody else. But there was certainly enough anointing for the woman with issue of blood to take hold of simply by her faith. Same thing as the centurion. Just a little less detail about his understanding as compared to hers. But at the very least, we can say that she, heard, she took what she heard of Jesus. And just like the centurion, just like the Syrophoenician woman, she applied it to herself. Why do people try to make so many excuses for why it's not for them? When the Bible gives us examples of God being very pleased with people that do apply it to themselves, and those people always got results. Seems like that's where we ought to put our efforts, doesn't it? Let me show you another example. It's right here in the same neighborhood. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, it says, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Anytime you see somebody talking about Jesus being the son of David, it's a recognition of the Messiah that was to be born from David's house. So when they call him the son of David, they're not talking about his lineage. They're talking about the Messiah. So they cried out. These two blind men cried out, followed after Jesus, crying out and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when Jesus was come to the house, that means he didn't stop when he heard him on the road. But when he was come to the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I'm able to do this? Jesus looked for faith everywhere he went. In John chapter 5, it talks about the man at the pool of Bethesda. There's five porches full of folks. I, I guess that's a big crowd. We don't know how many it would be, but there's a lot of people that are waiting for the angel to come down and trouble the water. They understood that the first one in after the angel stirred the water up got healed. Jesus asked this man, wilt thou be made whole? And the man starts telling him why he can't be. Now this certainly was not a, um, a matter of his own faith. He doesn't exercise any faith that we have record of at all. But Jesus being sent to show the sick at the pool of Bethesda. And apparently this was a, a pretty well-known place. People knew the supernatural nature of the angel coming down every now and then. Nobody knew when he was coming. He didn't have a Thursday morning appointment that he kept every week or anything like that. But it's apparently well known for that many people, five porches full of folks to be there. Jesus ministered healing to this one man, telling him to rise, take up his bed and walk, to show that God sent his son to stir the waters, not just an angel.
Well, how was the man healed? Had to be by the healing anointing that was on Jesus. Just like these others. So in this case, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, now this time he touches them, but he also says the same thing that he did to the centurion. According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus straightly charged them saying, see that no man knows it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. How's a blind man that they now see supposed to not tell it? Everybody can see what happens. Everybody that knew him before wants to know how is it that you're able to see now? And so at the very least, word gets out and it affects people in that whole region, that whole territory, because they heard that God was healing. So we have several examples, several places, several incidents where Jesus just simply responds to people's faith. Not going out to try to teach them or convert them or persuade them. But just responds to people's faith. And in every case, these people have taken whatever they heard about Jesus. Whatever they heard about Jesus healing the sick. Whatever they heard about his methods or uh, the number of people or, or whatever. Whatever they've heard about Jesus, every one of them applies it to themselves. On their own. On their own. There are some places in the world, and I'm afraid our country is one of them, where the church has done such an outstanding job of excusing or explaining away why God doesn't want to heal today. That so often you're having to try to persuade or convince people of the healing power of God. Jesus never did that. He never did that. He let the people that had persuaded themselves by the truth of his word, by the truth of what he was doing here on the earth, and there's another objection people will raise. Yeah, but Jesus was here. If we could see him in the flesh doing these things, then we would believe too. But the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus hadn't lost any healing power. The will of God concerning healing, the will of God concerning the, the transfer or the ministering of God's healing power, None of that's changed. It's the same now as it always was. It's the same now as it always was. Jesus knew what he was anointed to do. And anybody and everybody that exercised any level of faith whatsoever toward that power applying, that healing power applying to them Received every time. Let me show you another couple of scriptures. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, it says in verse 1, Then he called his twelve disciples together 
and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. What does verse 1 mean? He called the 12 and he gave them power over evil spirits and over every disease. Folks, you need to realize that Judas was part of this 12. Judas handled the healing power of God for three years. Well, a little more than two years, really. Luke chapter 9 tells us what happened after Jesus' first year of ministry was completed. So from the time Luke chapter 9 verse 1 takes place where the 12 are given power over sickness and disease and to cast out devils, it's another two years of walking with and working with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Judas was one of those. It's fascinating to me how Judas could have been persuaded by the temptation of the devil to betray Jesus. He operated in the power of God. I think that's one reason that the list in Hebrews chapter 6 about those that fall from grace those that give up their relationship with God, how that they cannot be won back to the Lord. One of the criteria, one of the stipulations of that group, and I would assume it's a small group of people, God's the only one who would know that for sure, I guess. But one of those criteria, one of those things on the list that are required before somebody has even reached the level of maturity to lose their salvation is to handle the power of God. To handle the power of God. When Judas handled the power of God, when he ministered healing to the sick, when he cast out devils of people that were possessed with them, he knew it wasn't him. He knew it was God. I wonder how somebody could fall after that. But apparently people do. Let's hope that's a rare incidence or occurrence. So here where it says Jesus delivered to his apostles, the disciples, the 12, power over sickness and disease and authority to cast out devils. He's giving them the same anointing that was given to him. He, Jesus, is giving the disciples the same anointing that God gave him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. There's no mention, and rightly so, There's no mention of the disciples saying, wow, we feel different, Jesus. No indication that they would feel different. No indication whatsoever by what Jesus tells them or what he does. There's no indication that Jesus is waiting for them or encourages them or tells them that when you get a tingling in your hands, then you'll know the healing power of God is ready and available to be ministered. Nothing like that. He anoints them to go do the same work that God anointed him to do. No feelings. No change in their behavior. Just power. Just like was on him. Meaning Jesus. So he anoints his disciples. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. That's what we were talking about a few minutes before. To declare that God wants things for us here on the earth just like he wants them in heaven. 
Because he's the same, whether we're here on the earth or where we're in heaven with the rest of the family of God, God's the same. He doesn't change. God's will for you doesn't change. God's life in you doesn't change. God's plan and purpose for you doesn't change. As far as he's concerned, everything is the same. That what has changed through no fault of God's, but strictly because of Adam and Eve yielding to the influence of the devil. What has changed is the world has been plunged into darkness, spiritual darkness. But thank God, the blood of Jesus redeemed us from that. And now, we are living not under the law of sin and death, but under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So Jesus sends the disciples to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Notice those, that phrase. He sends them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Why are those tied together? Because God wants healing for the sick here on the earth. Just like he's provided healing for the sick in heaven. No sickness, no disease will ever come to the gates of heaven. Because that's the kingdom of God. And God wants the same thing for us here. Look at Luke chapter 10. Verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. He gives them instruction, and for the sake of time, we'll skip down to verse 9. He said, and heal the sick that are therein, talking about the cities that receive them or the cities that exercise faith toward what they preach about the kingdom of God, about God's will for your life. And heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Please notice that phrase. Healing the sick was supposed to convince them of the reality of the kingdom of God being available here on the earth. It was supposed to convince them that healing is always God's will. We know it's his will in heaven. We know there's no presence of sickness and disease in heaven. So that of necessity, by definition, would be absolute proof that that's the way God wants it for you and me here. These 70 return from what Jesus sent them to do. It says in verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord... Even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, if you go back and read the rest, of the, the first part of the chapter where he's commissioning them to go, he didn't say a word about casting the devil out of people. But these 70 have been around Jesus enough to have seen the devil cast out of others. And they just look at it like it must be an oversight that Jesus didn't say anything about casting out devils. How else would they have found out that the devils were subject to them in the name of Jesus? They came upon some situation. They commanded the devil to go and leave the person. And according to their testimony, that's the way it went. The devil left. We've got power and authority over, over diseases and over evil spirits. Even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power, literally authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now we know that since Jesus is saying that's the way that it should be, that has to be the will of God. If it's not the will of God for man 
mankind to have authority over sickness and disease and authority over the devil, all the power of the devil, which, of course, you understand sickness and disease is under the power of the devil. It's a part of the devil's power. Tragedy and calamity, any evil thing, anything that hurts or harms mankind in any way is a part of the power of the devil. If Jesus is just making the statement contrary to God's will, then that makes Jesus a sinner and an unworthy sacrifice. So we have to conclude, just as Jesus said, I only say the things my Father gives me to say, that this is the will of God, the will of the God who never changes, meaning if it was his will for them in that time, it's got to be his will for us in our time. Or else the Bible's a lie. So Jesus said, Behold, I give you authority over all the power of the devil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Verse 20 is an interesting verse. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, he's saying, Rejoice because of the reason you have authority over the devil. Don't magnify and focus on the devil. Magnify and focus on your relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, folks, where in any of these scriptures, any of these incidents in Jesus' life and healing ministry, or when the apostles, whether they were the 12 or the 70, go out to do the same works that Jesus did, show me anywhere, in any way, in any, ma any manner whatsoever, in any example... Show me where somebody felt the power to anoint others or minister healing to others. We've got a couple of cases where people felt the power to go into them, where the sick felt the power to go into them. The woman with the issue of blood is a good example of that. She felt in her body after she acted on her faith and touched Jesus, the hem of his garment, she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus knew that power had gone out of him. He turns around and says, who touched me? That was as a result of him having power. King James calls it virtue, but it's really the word power in the Greek. He said, power has gone out of me. So what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus walks around feeling power? Does that mean Jesus walks around feeling the power of God on him all the time? Folks, that can't be the, the way it goes because the Bible says we're joint heirs with Christ. And that's not what we feel. We don't feel the power of God, do we? We may sometimes feel the power of God transferred to somebody. But there's nobody anywhere, no matter what they tell you, there's nobody anywhere that has more of it than Jesus had to be able to feel it just being on them all the time. It's not the way it works. It's a faith proposition on the part of the one that ministers the power, just like it's a faith proposition on the part of the one that receives the power. Because faith is the only thing that pleases God. If we ministered healing to the sick because we felt the power of God in our hands or upon us, then we'd be walking by sight and not by faith. So Jesus commissions the disciples and the 70 to heal the sick. And the only restriction he places on it is the faith of the individuals in the cities that they go to. He says, if the people will receive you, that's another way of saying if they believe the truth of what you're saying, then heal the sick. He doesn't say heal small sicknesses 
or heal headaches, but don't try to get into anything like cancer. Save the big stuff for me when I get to town. None of that. It's a group of men and women that were commissioned to do the same works that Jesus did. So we've come full, full circle. Jesus comes to Capernaum and finds a man who understands authority. And so he simply says, as you have believed, so be it done unto you. Why? Because of what he was anointed to do. Now turn with me over to James chapter 5. How many of us have thought, probably hadn't voiced it, but how many of us have thought that if we just felt the power of God, then you better believe we'd go out and lay hands on the sick? If we just felt anointed, and why didn't God give us the ability to feel anointed? Well, it's as we said, then we'd be walking by our feelings. Or walking by sight and not by faith. So notice here what the Bible says about the work of the church. Verse 13, is any among you afflicted? That means going through tests, trials, or troubles. It says, let him pray. It doesn't say get the church to pray for you. It says you do your own praying about your own troubles. I don't know why that's such a hard thing for people to get. It's always been an easy thing for me because I've never yet found anybody that's as interested in me and my troubles as me. So whatever I can do to get other people to pray for me is not going to be with the same fervor, is not going to be with the same care that I'm going to pray about my own situation. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That way when God answers your prayer delivers you out of your hard places you can't look at the pastor or somebody else some other minister and say well yeah they could do that because they have a special place with God you receive that on your own and realize you're in a special place with God is any among you afflicted let him pray is any merry let him sing songs folks I've got to tell you I have never in 31 plus years of pastoring this church and the three or four years of ministry before then, I've never had anybody come to me and say, great things are happening, sing for me. Everybody's perfectly willing to do their own singing when things turn out well. We don't even think about getting somebody else to do it for us. Isn't that right? Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Now, the very fact that John, I mean, uh, excuse me, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, after the Lord raises him up, church history tells us that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection and appointed him and anointed him to be the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. You see that Peter starts off being the leader of the church at Jerusalem in the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts. But by Acts chapter 10, James is the one in charge. He's the one that everybody's looking to as being the pastor. That's this James. And James asks a question that would seem unnecessary and perhaps ridiculous in the modern day church. He says, is there any sick among you? 
If he's writing to the modern day church, he'd say to the large percentage of sick in the church, I've got a message for you. But the way he phrases it, the way he asks the question, certainly implies, if nothing else, it implies that the church should be a place that's free from sickness and disease. Let that sink in for a while. The power of God should be so pervasive in the church that Jesus is building that it's non-existent. That sickness is non-existent. So he says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with all in the name of the Lord. The word pray is... uh, unfortunate in this verse of scripture because when we think of praying we associate that with asking God to heal people as we lay hands on them or anoint them with oil or whatever and that's not what this word pray means this word pray means worshiping God out loud it means to engage in oratory worship So it says, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them worship God over him. Literally. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith. Notice that. And the prayer of faith. Now people put verses uh, 14 and 15 together and they come up with, or they have, the church has come up with this notion, this idea that we're supposed to ask God to heal the sick. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is asking God for something. But again, that's not what these two words mean. The first word, pray, in verse 14, as I said, is talking about worshiping God out loud. Vocal worship. In verse 15, where it says the prayer of faith, this word prayer does not mean ask. It means the declaration of faith. You can't find anything in the New Testament where either Jesus or the apostles or the church is whether Jesus and the apostles did or whether the church is instructed to pray over the sick we're commanded to minister the healing power of God to them we're commanded to take hold of that which has already been accomplished by the work of Jesus enforced and guaranteed by his resurrection And the prayer of faith, the declaration of faith shall save or heal the sick. The only way you can be saved from sickness is to be healed. This is the word sozo. When the word sozo is translated save or or salvation or something along that line, most of us think exclusively about forgiveness of sins. But it's an all-inclusive package. Salvation includes healing for the sick just as much as it does forgiveness of sins. So it says, is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them worship God over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now he's writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad and anointing with oil meant something to the Jews. It was a means of sanctifying or separating something for God's purpose and use. When the elements or the instruments of the temple were first made and whatever elements or instruments of the synagogues were developed so that people could worship God in the synagogues. Those were always anointed with oil as a signifying means 
that these are things, natural things that have been made holy for God's use. And that's what anointing with oil means in the church. The problem with that is it's not commanded of the Gentiles because anointing with oil doesn't have any part of the Gentile culture. So since Paul is writing, excuse me, so since James is writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad, he's saying for them to enter into something that signifies their lives, their bodies being separated for the service of God, just like the instruments of the temple. But the Gentiles don't have a temple. The Gentiles came out of idolatry. And they were taught by Paul particularly that their bodies were the temple of God. So it's not the anointing with oil that does anything. It's the prayer of faith, the declaration of faith. Faith in what? That Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. And with his stripes you were healed. Not going to be healed. With his stripes you were healed. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise them up. Now let me ask you this. In context or in line with. In comparison with. The things that we saw about Jesus being anointed. The things that we saw about Jesus ministering that anointing. He certainly knew what he was anointed for. And he ministered that anointing in a variety of ways. Sometimes by the laying on of hands, sometimes just by speaking the word. And again, in those rare occasions, sometimes where he would spit on somebody or have them do some unusual, take some unusual action. Which tells me, signifies to me, that there's not just one way for the healing anointed to be ministered to people. There's a variety of ways. But could we, all, could we not conclude, now I want you to think about this very carefully, could we not conclude that just as Jesus anointed the 12 to preach the kingdom, to heal the sick, and to cast out devils, just as Jesus anointed the 70 to preach the kingdom, to heal the sick, and they even found out that it worked to cast out devils. Is God not by the Holy Ghost telling us in James chapter 5 that the elders, which would correspond with the, the modern-day church ministry staff, are anointed to heal the sick just the same way? Is that not an anointing that James is informing us about? And again, remember, James was the pastor of the church. wonder how he found out. How did he find out about this declaration of faith? How did he find out that the church had power to heal the sick? <clears throat> he must have found out by trial and error. Like many of the rest of us find things out. They knew of Jesus laying hands on the sick. He's got some of the apostles that are in his church in Jerusalem. James has heard the stories. He's seen a lot of things. There were several places in Jesus' life and ministry where it talks about his mother and his brothers and his sisters, meaning half-brothers and sisters, that followed him around or were exposed to his ministry. They didn't all believe. There was one time in particular that his mother and his brothers, half-brothers and half-sisters, thought Jesus had gone too far. 
Now, I can understand that from his half-brothers and sisters, but how does Mary ever come to the place where she thinks he's gone too far? She, if anybody, knows he was born supernaturally. How do you forget that? I'm convinced that she just got talked into certain things by the brothers and sisters. But she knew. And don't you know she told the family? Don't you know she told all of her kids about the virgin birth? That'd be quite a family to grow up in, wouldn't it? So if the, if the 12 received an anointing to heal the sick, if the 70 received an anointing to heal the sick, why would it be such a far-fetched thing for us to accept what James says that the pastoral staff of the church are anointed to heal the sick? Is there any difference other than the wording? I can't see any. When Jesus went to Jerusalem the last week of his life, you remember he enters in on Palm Sunday where people are crying Hosanna to the son of David. They welcome him as the Messiah. One of the first things it says Jesus did was that he went into the temple and he turned the money changers' tables over and ran them out. And you remember what he said? He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Immediately following that, it says the blind and the maimed came to Jesus and he healed them. So what I want you to understand is a house of prayer, what Jesus called the house of prayer, is also a house of healing. It was then and it is now. It was then, and it is now. And it will always be. It will never cease to be anything but just that. Because no matter what we feel, no matter what it feels like, we're anointed of God to minister healing to the sick. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your provision. We thank you, Father, for what you have delivered unto us through the mighty work of Jesus. Through the shedding of his blood, he took our sins. Through the shedding of his blood, he took our sickness. He shed his blood that we might be free from the work of the devil. Therefore, we declare that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from sickness and disease. According to your word, Father, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and everybody in it has been set free from sickness and disease. 
We thank you, Father, that the healing power of God flows through those that you have called to the ministry worldwide. We thank you that you have equipped your church with the healing power of God that is ministered effectively through the declaration of faith and through our worship of our Lord Jesus who paid the price for us. I thank you, Father, that it works every time. I thank you, Father, that your healing anointing, your healing power works every time. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you that you care for us and you've provided healing power for us for small things because you care about the details of our lives, but also through big things, through Im for impossible-looking things. I thank you that anointing produces healing results and it performs notable miracles. You did those things for the early church. And you're the same in the present day church. In Jesus' name. We love you, Father. We thank you. That the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. And he quickens our mortal bodies. So rather, whether it's progressive or instantaneous, your healing power is at work, restoring every one of your children who reach out in faith to receive that which you have accomplished. It's working in every one of us, quickening our mortal bodies, restoring us to health and healing our wounds, our injuries. In the name of Jesus. We love you, Father. We love you with all of our hearts. And even as the centurion said, speak the word only for us, we recognize that you've already spoken. And we accept that as truth. That's good enough for us, Father. We choose to stand on your word. We choose to declare what you have said. And Father, your word says, we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. Bless you, Father. We bless you. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. 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 The glory of God is hanging over your head like a cloud. I see a mist or a fog-like thing that's about 18 inches above your heads. So whatever you need, just reach up into that cloud and take hold of it. It's the presence of God. And whenever these things occur, God has a purpose in it. That purpose is to meet your need.
Every scripture, every promise that God has made to you, he's made to you for one and only one purpose. And that is to fulfill that which he said he would do. That's the only reason for the promises of God. That he might bring them to pass in you and for you. In Jesus' name, we take hold of it, Father. We take hold of the finished work of Jesus. We take hold of your presence. And we declare that we're free. Free from sickness and disease. Free from poverty and lack. Free from sin. And the guilt thereof. Thank you we've been made free by the blood of Jesus. By the precious blood of Jesus. By the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shedding your blood. Thank you for setting us free. Say this after me. I'm free by the blood of Jesus. I'm healed by the blood of Jesus. I declare by faith that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Amen. Amen. When the presence of God manifests itself, or when the Holy Spirit manifests himself, maybe that's a better way to say it, there's a peace that's always attached to it. There's a rest that always appears. If you're not careful, you can mistake it for sleepiness. But it's peace. And there's an overwhelming nature or overwhelming characteristic. That's a better way to say it. There's an overwhelming characteristic to the presence of God. To the manifest presence of God. God can't manifest himself without manifesting his power. It's just as much a part of him as the peace of God is. It's good to be in the presence of God. Amen? Amen. Well, I've never figured out how you end services like this. So if you want to just sit here in the presence of God for as long as it lasts, that's okay with me. If you need to go or want to go, that's fine too. Just be aware that the, there may be others around you that are Still trying to enjoy what God's doing for them. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.